sometimes when it feels like we're not that blessed and we're having a hard time, Father, we need to just stop and remember how blessed we are and what you have done for us, Lord God. We thank you, Father, for all the good things that you've done for us. We thank you, Lord God, first of all, for your grace and your mercy that is new every single morning. We thank you, Father, that you love us, that you sent your Son to come and display how to live and then to die for us and then to raise from the dead. We thank you for that, Lord God. We thank you. We cannot, stay, we cannot stop saying thank you, Lord for your goodness and your mercy. And Lord God, I know there are things going on in our lives. We, there are things we bring in here this morning, uh, real issues, real troubles, real challenges. And we thank you, Father God, that you care about those things. You do care, and that we lay those at your feet right now in Jesus' name. We lay them at the cross so that we can receive from you. We can receive healing. We can receive restoration. We can receive answers and hope. We thank you for that this morning. I thank you for every person in this room and every person watching on the internet right now. We thank you, Father, that your Holy Spirit is in all of us, Father, and we're desperate for you in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 All right. Good to see you guys. My name's Scott. If I didn't mention that before, my name's Scott. And this morning, we are going to jump back into our series, our walk through the book of Philippians. We're calling this series Relentless Joy, and there's a reason behind that. It's Relentless Joy because... In this incredibly, incredibly personal letter that Paul is writing to his friends in the city of Philippi and the church there, it's this really personal letter. He's writing this letter, as we talked about, in prison. He's sitting in a dungeon, chained between guards, literally chained between guards, not knowing if he's ever going to get out or if this is the time or if the next day, the next morning is when they're going to call for his execution. He doesn't really know. And all he can do is celebrate. Christ. He just celebrates Christ. And so we look at this, and he, he celebrates how much he loves the church, and he expresses his joy that no matter what happens to him, Jesus Christ is getting made more famous. That's what matters to Paul. The revolution is afoot. He is excited. He knows it's happening. The gospel message is getting out there to more and more people, and people's lives are being changed by that resurrected Christ. Amen? Paul is somebody you just cannot keep down. You can't keep him down. So we, we read this book and we read this, uh, we study these words of his because this is important for us today. We live in strange times. Am I right? We live in strange times. You can talk back today. It's okay. Uh, we won't ask you to leave. So, you know, I got to read in Philippians one day and I'm thinking if Paul in his chains doesn't just endure his challenges, but he thrives. He is filled with this relentless joy. Maybe, just maybe, there's a secret in here for us to discover so that we can live with genuine joy, genuine hope, genuine, you know, love and energy no matter what is going on around us. So that's why we're going through this book, and we're going to continue where we left off a couple of weeks ago, starting at Philippians 3.17, so you can turn there if you have your Bibles. We're going to finish up chapter 3 this morning. By the way, just a little uh, something. There, there will be no deeper small group this Wednesday night. Uh, I'll be out of town at a little conference on Tuesday and Wednesday, so we'll, we won't have our small group deeper um, 
in there. Sorry about that. But it is a wonderful chance for all of you who might usually go to deeper, a wonderful chance for you to uh, join our adult Bible study going on right in this very room on Wednesday nights. And right now, Hildy Sargent is teaching a powerful series called Triumphing Over Fear. Uh, she just started that a week or two ago. And so you want to, that'd be a great opportunity for you to come in here, enjoy that. Hey, Sundays, we're learning how to live with relentless joy. On Wednesdays, Wednesdays we're learning how to triumph over fear. That's a pretty good two-fisted way to live right there. Amen. So come, come back on Wednesday for that. Um, has everybody found Philippians? Okay. Uh, I want to give you a little heads up about the text this morning. Uh, there's, a, there's a theme that is running through this book that I want to point out today because he, he refers to it. There's a concept that Paul refers to over and over in this letter. He brings it up about ten times. And the concept is a Greek word known as phronesis. Let's everybody say that. Phronesis. Phronesis, phronesis. Phronesis is, what it means is, it's a particular pattern of thinking. It's a mindset. It's like a worldview that you have. A worldview which is necessary to, that, that sort of forms the bedrock of everything that you believe. See, you have a phronesis right now. Like, like in the world of politics, a lot of people, you have a phronesis. It's a worldview. It's, it's a baseline way that you see things. The way you see the role of, of the country. The way you see the role of government, for instance, or something like that. That is why when someone comes along and tries to argue like a, a, a different point or a different issue, it, it, sometimes it won't get it won't change your mind because it's contradictory to your overall phronesis, right? So your phronesis is very, very important. And in the context of Philippians, Paul is talking about this worldview that is necessary for us to truly understand and live out the gospel. There is a whole worldview. I can't, I can't just change your mind about a little point here or there. We've got to get unified on a whole worldview of phronesis. It's the word that Paul used back uh, when he talked about being like-minded, he used a form of that word, phronesis. When he says, I, I, when he talks about he feels this way about all of you, the way he feels, that's phronesis. When he talks about being one in purpose, he used that word. How our attitude, uh, just a couple weeks ago, when he said our attitude should be like Christ's, that's phronesis. When he said that all who are mature should take such a view of things, should have this phronesis. So I just want to let you know about that. Keep that in mind because we're going to kind of come back to that in a little bit. Let's look at the text. Now, if you remember from, from uh, a couple weeks ago, previous verses, Paul has just come clean on some of the darkest corners of his life, right? He's, he's laid bare his worst sins, he, and he admits, I haven't crossed the finish line yet. I mean, he's not perfect, but he's in the race. You remember all that? He's in the race. He's growing in Christ. He's hunting down the prize. And then notice what he says in verse 17 this morning, chapter 3, verse 17. Join together. Join together. Remember, this letter would have been read in community, right? Someone would have come up and read. Here's the letter from Paul, everybody. And he would have read it in community. So he's telling all of them, the whole church gathered together. Join together in following my example. Literally, the word is imitate. Imitate. Brothers and sisters. And just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. Okay. Now, Paul has this little thing. That some, some people have this idea about Paul. Uh, have you ever heard this, that Paul, he can come across as a little arrogant? You ever heard this? Uh, there, if you just walked up late to this conversation, if Paul's talking to somebody and you walked up late and you, you caught in, right, you walked up, he says, follow my examples. Just keep your eyes on me as a model. Keep your eyes on live, live as I do. You'd be like, what kind of cocky guy is this? Right? 
I mean, it'd be easy to think that. You know, what? what? Live like we do because we're awesome. Just do what I do. Is that what he's saying? But what is he talking about when he says, have us as a model? Keep your eyes on folks who live like us. Well, we know what he's not talking about because of what we've already read. So you guys are like Philippians experts now, right? So what we know he's not talking about is his religious credentials, right? Or his social status, or his tribe, or his achievements in life, because he just got done telling us a few paragraphs earlier that, you know what, all that stuff I used to be proud of, all of that, in comparison to having a relationship with Jesus Christ, there is no comparison. In fact, it's all garbage to me. He just got done saying that. I've laid all of that down for the sake of knowing Christ. I've laid down my greatest achievements as well as my worst sins. So we know that. So what's the example that he's inviting his friends to follow in? He's talking about just that. He's talking about living this humble, joyful, passionate life where you can confess some of the darkest things that have happened to you. You can confess all that stuff. You can hold up your, your hugest shortcomings and, and reinterpret it through the lens of the resurrected Christ who's taking care of everything on the cross. That's what he's saying to imitate. Paul's saying, hey, we few, we lucky few, we are learning to live in this new reality, this new phronesis. It's, the, it's a supernatural mindset. That's what we're learning to live with. It's a pattern of thinking and feeling and acting like Christ, where our worst stuff, even our worst stuff, just becomes living, breathing examples of what the grace of God is capable of. The worst you can come up with is just another more amazing example of what the grace of God is capable of. Hallelujah. So he's saying, so do it like we've discovered. We've discovered it. Do it like that. Learn to see yourself in Christ. All these things that he's been telling us. Forgiven. See yourself forgiven. See yourself reconciled. Yourself loved. Accepted. And when you do that, then you can be brutally honest with your past. Right? Because there's nothing left to hide. There's nothing left to repress. We don't have to repress it. We don't have to keep a secret out of shame because you're free. That's a pretty good thing to imitate. Amen? Paul invites us to, to follow the example of those like him who, who live lives marked with humility, radical service, people who surrender any entitlement they once have felt about things, right? Now think about it. These are not normally... Here in 2015, these are not normally the uh, people we would naturally look to as models and heroes. People who say, listen, let me admit to you all my weaknesses. Is that our models and heroes today? Right? Look look at the the two front runners in in both of the party in the election right now. Neither of them are people who say, look, let me tell you all about all my weaknesses. What what do they say? I don't make mistakes. (laughs) Right? Right? These are not the people we hold up as models and heroes. Right? Let me admit to you my weaknesses. Let me tell you how I've suffered, how I've emptied myself and given up my rights. That's not who we typically celebrate and hold up as examples. But Paul says, no, no, no. These are the kinds of people you should model after. Notice, too, he says in there, join together. Join together. That's really important. Join together in following this example, right? Because this is not some solitary, religious, philosophical exercise just between you and God. 
This isn't something you discover, you know, going and sitting under a tree for a couple of years, just you and God. This is not an individual, individualistic holiness. Remember the context of this letter. It's going to be read to the whole community, and this theme of church unity and relationship, it runs all through the letter. And so it's, it's so critical to Paul that our eyes are open, that we understand there, there is something profoundly powerful in, in a group of people, a community of people coming together like this, giving up their rights, giving up their entitlements, and choosing to follow Jesus in this context of relationship with one another. There's something powerful in this. Even, even what we're doing right here this morning, there's a power involved in this. This is the path, the phronesis, that Paul is encouraging us to adopt. Because, as Paul tells us next, there's an alternative path. There's another way to go. Verse 18, he says, For, as I have often told you before, and now I tell you again, even with many tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. These people have a different phronesis. They aren't, they aren't seeing the world through the lens of Christ. I find it really interesting here, after all of these weeks we've gone through all this, here in the 18th verse of the third chapter of Philippians, we finally have the, the first sign of Paul feeling anything resembling sadness. You notice that? He, admitting this thing brings him to tears. And let me tell you, with tears here, the, 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 it doesn't really do it justice. The Greek word is klion, and it, it literally means to weep with loud, uncontrollable grief. To weep with loud, uncontrollable grief. It's the same word used in the Bible when Jesus was approaching Jerusalem, and he wept, he grieved deeply at his own people's rejection of the gospel. This is that same word used right here. And notice, notice, notice the reaction. What is it? It's weeping, it's sadness, it's grief. It's not an angry reaction. Reaction like, hey, there's enemies of the cross. Let's go destroy them, right? Let's go defeat them. Somebody start a letter-writing campaign, right? It's not that. What does he do? It, makes him, it, it doesn't make him feel offended. It gives him profound sadness. It's a whole different phronesis. Do, do you see what a, a healthy, an incredibly healthy place Paul is at? emotionally and spiritually, mentally. He's in prison. That doesn't discourage him, right? He rejoices about that. He's been beaten. That doesn't get him down. He's been, he's been shipwrecked. Friends desert him. He's lost his status in religious society. He faces execution daily. No worries. He loves it. Christ is being glorified. Hallelujah. So what makes Paul unhappy? What makes him cry? That people are living and dying as enemies of the cross of Christ. That makes him unhappy. This is a man whose well-being and his joy is not based on his own comfort but on Christ. It's based on Christ. And when he sees folks out there reject that infinite gift of grace that Christ offers them, that is the closest thing to putting a chink in his armor of, happy, armor of happiness. When he sees people reject that. Mm. Now notice, he calls these people enemies, not just of Christ, but of what? The cross of Christ. That's important. What's he getting at? He's saying there's people out there who are at odds with what Jesus did at the cross. There's something about that that they are at odds with. Remember, remember talking about crucifixion. We talked about it a few weeks ago. Crucifixion was shameful in Roman society. 
Remember we talked about that? Uh, it, was a, it was worse than a bad word. It was taboo. You just didn't bring it up. It was like, oh, that's really gross. You don't, you don't, it's, it was a place of, the cross is a place of scandal. It was a place of shame. It was the ultimate symbol of weakness, of giving up one's rights. And God himself, this is the God we serve. This gets me excited. God himself, he doesn't just take human form, which, which that by itself is already an intolerable conundrum to the religious elite. God taking human form, that, that's heresy to them, right? Because think about it, that means God becomes human. That means God becomes flesh and blood. God can be cut. God has to eat. God is tired. He has to go to the bathroom. That's not kosher. That's like an intolerable blasphemy to the religious wing. So already, they were like, no, 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 no. You, you can't even say that. But God didn't stop there. He goes a step further. This amazing level of humility. He goes a step further. He willingly subjects himself to the worst torture and humiliation, a scandal, not just to the Jewish culture, but the pagan culture. They all thought that cross, that is a scandalous thing. It's awful. He hangs on a cross which was the nationwide symbol of shame and taboo. And he turns it around and Jesus says, this symbol most despised is actually a place of ultimate victory, of ultimate triumph. Amen? Amen. The celebration of infinite grace, infinite mercy happens here at the cross. Hallelujah. And the cross becomes this gathering place. For the world of people, this people who say, you know what, I've tried to do things on my own. I can't do things on my own. I've tried all the systems. They don't work. I tried finding my identity in success and my career and education and through conquering my way to the top. And none of it matters in the end. It's all excrement in the end. And it's this gathering place of people who say there's something missing in all of that. There's this hole in my soul that none can fill but this God man hanging on this cross. And, and so the cross is the place where we gather and we build this community of people who have come to the end of themselves. That's who we are. This is the God we serve. Sometimes in, in our society, we hear all kinds of versions of God. Everybody's got a different concept of God. If you go to the man on the street, what do you think about God, right? There's, a, there's angry God. There's judgmental God, you know, with the thunderbolts kind of thing. There's a tree-loving vegan God with flowers in her hair. There's that God, right? There's too holy to help the world God. That's the way a lot of people think. Let me tell you what, you cannot begin to understand who God is, to understand God until you stand beneath that cross and look up at that face. That's the face of God. That is the face of God. Jesus Christ, the one who is willing to enter the world, embrace its pain, pay for its sins through his own resurrection. And then he puts the nail in the coffin of death, hell, and the grave by resurrecting from the dead. Hallelujah. See, that is God. Anything else is a Hollywood stereotype or some demonic substitution of God. That is God. So these enemies of the cross that grieves Paul so much, who are they? Well, we find out a little bit more about him in verse 19. Let's go there. In verse 19, he says, Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set. That's the word for nesis, by the way. Their mind is set on earthly things. 
So these are folks with, they don't have a larger vision for life. They have a distorted, unhealthy phronesis. So first he says their God is their stomach. That phrase of the, the stomach there, it means a lot more than a biological stomach. Uh, it's referring to the center of pleasure and feeling. So that's their God. The Philippian church, you have to remember where they were. They're smack dab in the center of this pagan empire. The Roman Empire is all around them. They're, they're ground zero. And so this, they have this worldly culture all around them that effectively worshipped whatever made them feel good. It, it's something today we can't relate to at all. Right? <laughs> A culture that worshipped what made them feel good. It was a society, it idolized sensual indulgence. And so they had this concept that, well, whatever I feel, I should serve, right? They would actually make idols to the different objects of their pleasure to, to show what, what makes them feel good. They serve that, right? That's what I want. I'm entitled to this. And so our stomachs become our God. Then he says their glory is in their shame, this is, this is the false mindset. Again, it, it's a world we can't possibly relate to. Uh, this is a culture that actually celebrates what is sin and criticizes what's pure and holy. Their glory is in their shame. And he says their mind is set on earthly things. This, this is a picture of an obsession with the world that it's narrow, it's tunnel vision, as opposed to a focus that is includes the kingdom of Christ. It's set on things of physical things. And this earthly mindset is something that we can find ourselves guilty of, all of us. Whether we're acting like pagans and, you know, living for immediate gratification, there's that side of it too. But there's another way that we can be guilty of this too. We can miss the point of what Christ has done on the cross and focus instead on religion as our Savior, right? This is why religion is so deadly. It promises you a path out of the earth into heaven, but in reality, it just substitutes one set of earthly obsessions for a whole other set of ritualistic religious earthly obsessions. It's just a substitution. It's a shell game. That is religion. And Paul says the inevitable destiny of either of these ways of living is destruction. Whether you're living as a pagan or religion is your God. The, the destiny is destruction, ruin. And isn't it awesome? Christ always offers this third way. He always offers the third way, free of our sin and free of religion. We're free of our sin, free of our religion. In verse 20, he says, But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, all of this, we could easily read that and just kind of fly right through it, but this is really loaded language in first century. Okay, first century Philippi, they would have read this and went, oh, I see what he did there. They'd be high-fiving each other right here. Because citizenship, you have to understand, was, was a big deal in the Roman Empire. That was a very big deal. It was a big deal to be a citizen of the empire. Not everybody was a citizen. In fact, only about half the population of the Roman Empire was a citizen. The rest were slave class. So to get your citizenship was a big deal, something you could boast about. Hey, I, I, I got my papers, man. I am a citizen of the Roman Empire. And the people of Philippi were in this situation. They were kind of uh, fortunate in that when the, the Romans came through there, they, did, you know, they, they didn't turn them all into a slave class. They gave them citizenship. So these guys, he's talking to them. These, these are Roman citizens he's talking to. So it was valued 
And, but Paul says, we have a whole nother empire that we're actually a part of. Something totally else. Paul's language here, it's really intentional. He's very intentional. He's not wasting words. He, and he mentions citizenship. But then, look what else he talks about. He starts ta- talking about saviors and lords. When you get into that in a Roman context, again, it's revolutionary stuff he's saying. Because savior and lord were the actual titles of Caesar. Caesar came into your town as Savior and Lord. That's what was on the banners and the flags. Savior and Lord. He was, that was what went in the propaganda machine back then. He was known as the one who saved the known world, right? The civilized world. He would save you from the chaos outside the Roman Empire, those barbarian hordes out there. So he was known as the Savior of the Roman Empire. He was the bringer of peace. After he, you know, killed everybody who resisted, he brought peace. He was the almighty Lord and ruler. So Paul says, actually, guys, our Lord isn't Caesar. It's Jesus, right? Revolutionary stuff. He's reminding his friends here that they belong to a greater kingdom than Rome, something greater than Rome. And you know what? As modern Westerners today, we we need the same reminder all the time. We need a reminder as proud as you and I, if if you're a citizen of America right now, as proud as I am of being a citizen of this earthly kingdom of America, do you know what? And I don't mind saying out loud for the IRS and everybody else to hear, this is not where my ultimate allegiance lies. This is not. Now, this wasn't an easy thing for the Philippians to hear, just as it's not an easy thing for a lot of us to hear. Now, can we love our country? Yes, absolutely. Can we serve our country? Yes, absolutely. Right? There's no greater love than to lay down your life for your brother. We can absolutely serve and love our country. But we should never forget, whoever we are, whether we're serving, whether we're running for president, whether we're on our neighborhood city council, whoever we are, never forget that we are primarily, first and foremost, ambassadors and citizens of the kingdom of Christ. That's our identity. We have a new identity in Christ. First and foremost, I'm an ambassador and a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. Hallelujah. So just as Paul, remember what he said, he put... The fact that he was, his membership, that was something to be proud of. He put the membership as an Israelite, his membership as as a Benjamite, as a Jewish rabbi. He put his citizenship in the kingdom of heaven far above all of that. So we we shouldn't allow any kind of tribal identification to come before our identification with Christ. Amen? Amen. Amen. Verse 21, he says, who, he's talking about Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Oh, this is such a wonderful promise for Paul. As he's writing this, the future is not uncertain. It's a sure and present reality. He's not wondering It's a sure and present reality, and it's this, that we are going to be okay. We're going to be okay. The same Christ who is the Lord of all creation, he's going to take these flawed, depraved, kind of broken bodies, and he's going to bring things into the proper harmony that God intended for everything. Amen? The word transform that he uses here is really cool, where he says, He's going to transform our lowly bodies. Its literal meaning of this word is to change the outward appearance to match the true nature. He's going to change the outward appearance 
to match the true nature. We'll be transformed into bodies. Now, glorious bodies, yes. But notice bodies, actual real bodies. Not just immaterial spiritual smoke sitting on a cloud. Bodies that are like the glorious body of Christ when he rose from the dead. Amen. This is the hope of every believer. This is our hope. We believe this, right? If you don't believe in miracles, you are going to have a huge surprise on that day. I'm just telling you. If that's like, that sounds pretty far-fetched. I understand. It's crazy, but it's going to happen, and we're all going to be surprised if you, if you don't believe it. Because we believe that the resurrection power that raised Jesus from the dead, that same power is going to resurrect every single one of us whose faith is in Christ. Amen? Amen. And Scripture says at that time, something really cool is going to happen. He's going to finally reassert his total and complete lordship over every corner of creation, every single cell, every atom and molecule, every nook and cranny, every man, woman, and child in creation. He asserts his lordship. The Bible starts with this very clear message in Genesis 1-1 that creation was good. It started good. That God created it good. It went off track. But it was created good, and he will make it good again. Amen. Amen? He will. He'll restore what is broken and bring everything under his control. A new heaven, a new earth, every tongue proclaiming Jesus is Lord. Amen? Amen. That is our hope. Hallelujah. Now, let's go to the next verse. Now, Scott, that's the end of verse chapter 3. I know it. We're going to go crazy here. We're going to include the first verse of chapter 4 because uh, actually scholars feel like it's the, it is the culminating thought relating to the previous paragraph. Um, now remember, when, you know, when the Bible was written, there were no chapters and verses, right? Paul didn't insert little chapters and verses in his letter. He wrote it like a letter. So a bunch of priests about a thousand years ago added them to be helpful, and I'm glad they did. It is helpful. But in the process, I think little verse one of chapter four accidentally went home with the wrong family, right? (laughs) When they left the hospital. So today we're going to reunite them. Get your cameras ready. It's going to be an Oprah moment. Here we go. (laughs) Chapter four, verse one. Therefore, therefore, my brothers and sisters, You whom I love and long for. That means to yearn with deep affection. Ah, to long for them. It's his beloved, right? And then he calls them my joy and my crown. My joy, my crown. I want to park there for just a little bit. This is so beautiful here. The word crown in the Greek is this word stephanos. It means crown. Uh, Or commonly back then, it it was a wreath that they would wear on their heads, a wreath of glory. It's actually a sports image here, right? It's the winner of the race. After all the months of discipline, all the hard work, all the training, the victor has finally won. They get the wreath, and they've crossed the finish line, and in front of this crowd of onlookers, they get a crown, usually this wreath of leaves that was placed on their head. Now, for us, what's the closest thing we have to that? The Olympics. Right, the Olympics, the medal, right? Right, yeah, the Olympics. So uh, now, I have to admit, I am an Olympic geek, all right? I, I, I geek out when it comes time, whether it's summer or winter, whatever it is. I stay up till three in the morning because, you know, it's happening in Nagano or wherever it is. And so, but I, I love the Olympics. How many of you are like me? You're watching the Olympics. You know, you're putting in your six hours a night watching the Olympics, supporting the team. And, and you are just like putty, when they get on that stand, 
right? And they put the medal around their neck, right? You may have never heard of them before at all. You may have never known there was a sport called like downhill rabbit wrangling or something like that. But that is all you care about now, right? And you go full on allergy season, sniffling, and oh, that's so awesome, right? When they're standing on that podium and the flags are coming up, you know, the flags are lifting and the anthems start in. Oh my goodness, that athlete is beaming. Woo, I get excited just thinking about it. You see that? You see a scene like that happening? Oh, and it's so beautiful. I got a few other pictures. There's one. Oh, isn't she beautiful? She's so excited. She just won. Here she goes. She's holding up her Stefanos right there. Right? Here's one. He's extra happy. (laughs) She, he, I'm not sure. That awesome. And in Athens, it was cool back in. 10 years ago or so, they, they actually gave them the wreaths in celebration of the way they used to do it in the Greek games, right? And then what do they do? After they do this, what do they do? They always cut away to something really cool, especially if it's on NBC. You cut away to Bob Costas in the studio. The music's playing. And Bob Costas always says something like, and here's little Mary Cho. And let me tell you what you need to know about little Mary is that she has this brother who was born with three arms, and they had a little pet gerbil who's blind. And little Mary, and her, her, she, when she was a baby, her parents rescued her from some horrible place like Dallas or something, and they moved to their new home where she's been training her entire life, and now she's the victor. And now she can finally pay to have one of those arms removed on her brother or something. Anyway, it just... It rips your guts out, right? I mean, it just gets you so beautiful. This beautiful, brutal story. How many of you know what I'm talking about, right? You always get the story. And you normally wouldn't care at all, you know, about the Bulgarian synchronized waffle-making team or whatever, whoever, whatever. But all of a sudden, you care about nothing else, right? You're like, flip those waffles. Go for the gold. You know, you're screaming. You're screaming. You Swedish dude, sweep from the floor for the rock thing, right? Go for it. Sweep like the wind, right? That's all you care about. Maybe it's just me. (laughs) Maybe it's just me. I am a nerd. Anyway, and when they're standing there, they're wearing that medal and the anthem is playing. You are so moved. Why? Because it's not like they just got selected, you know, to be on the prices right. It's the ecstasy, the joy the sense of relief. And you know, they're thinking, I have given the last four years or sometimes like my whole life, I've given it to this and now I have what I've aimed for my whole life. And they're up there and you're feeling it with them, right? Paul says to the Philippians, you are my Stephanos. You are my crown. When I die, when I cross that finish line, he says, I get there, I'm going to get the prize. It is you I'm going to be wearing on my head. You're the gold medal around my neck. See, he has this deep connection with this community. He loves them. They're his pride and joy. And he's like, you know what? I'll go through the shipwrecks. I'll go through the beatings, the prison, and the hunger, and the training, and the growing. I'll face it all to see you thrive to see you learn to love each other, I'll face it all. When I'm dead and gone, they're going to place a crown around my head, and it's going to have your names and faces engraved into the gold. Look at the scripture he writes in another letter when he was writing the the Thessalonians. He wrote this, After all, what gives us hope and joy? What will be our proud reward and crown as we stand before our Lord Jesus when he returns? It is you. Yes, you are our pride and joy. Wow. 
You hear a lot of discussion today about what the church is, what a church is. And, and you know, you, people describing the church, are you all a missional church? What kind of church are you? Are you an attractional church? What's your ecclesiastical model, right? Do you guys follow? Are you a multi-site? Are you a postmodern? Are you non-denominational? Are you interdenominational? Are you seeker-sensitive? Are you seeker-insensitive? You know, whatever, whatever that is. You know, wah, 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 wah. are you this? Are you that? Maybe, maybe a healthier definition of church would be this. People who are wearing each other like a crown. People wearing each other like a crown who actually have each other on their minds. Everyone boasting only in what God has done in the lives of the other. When God does something for you, I get to wear that like a crown. Amen? Amen. See, you have people who are like, well, I don't really know about church. I don't know about God. Like, well, you know what? I can't prove it's by faith, but I, I can point to people in this church and go, but look at that. See, look at what God is doing in their life. Look at what they're doing for each other. Those two people right there, they didn't even like each other. They hated each other. And now they, they're praying together. They're hugging. They're sharing together. They're studying together, right? This person over here, they didn't have anything. They were down on their luck. And this person over here didn't even really know them, but like gave them a refrigerator. This person didn't have a car, and, and these people gave them a car, right? And this person was sick, and these other people went over and like brought them food and prayed for them and like took care of their kids for a few days, See, I can point to that and say, there's people wearing each other like a crown, right? And you can't deny that. You cannot deny it. You see, you're, you're the reason I get out of bed on Sunday morning. You're the reason. And the people who haven't yet found their way to Generations Church that I know are out there, they're the reason I get out of bed every single other day of the week. They're the reason. I'll tell you why we do this. I'll tell you why, why we keep pressing on, why we keep working and striving and, and seeking, going higher and gathering together and going out into our community and to all the world and rescuing orphans, why we keep building churches, while we're teaching your little ones back there about Jesus, the message of Jesus, while we're getting together for fellowship and encouraging each other during the week and we get together for coffee or something like that or for a Bible study here and there because I've got this group of people here. I've got this group of people here and for me, the joy... My joy is to see them thrive and to see them grow and to learn to love and forgive each other over and over and over and to get unstuck from, from a miserable, pointless life and discover a life full of purpose and beauty and, and, and grace and relationship. To see people discover, amen. I want to see people discover that nobody has to walk alone. Nobody needs to be walking alone. If you're walking alone, you're doing it the hard way. And shame on us for even letting them. This church is a place where we're learning to see the pain in other people and do something about it. And make sure that they aren't suffering in silence. And, and that they know that the same Christ who rescued me from all kinds of garbage, from my sin, from hopelessness, can rescue them from, from theirs. The same Christ. Amen. You are on my mind like a, like a crown. You're on my head like a crown. What if the measure of how good a church member you were were simply, who are you wearing around your head? Who's on your mind? That's a community of people who are so deeply invested in each other that you can feel it, taste it, sense it just by getting around them. 
Who have you got on your crown? Whose welfare are you so deeply intertwined with and invested in? They're, they're, they're like a gold medal hanging around your neck. Seeing them shine and grow and mature and thrive, it makes it all worth it for you. Because what's the last thing he says here? Stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. In other words, I love this, because in other words, he's saying, don't just hang in there. We can do better than hanging on by your fingertips till the day we die. We can do better than that. Stand firm. Get on your feet. Hold your ground. Stay in the race, right? Stay in the race in the face of pain, in the face of struggling, of suffering, and haters and doubters and all those kind of people. Stand firm. Lock arms with your fellow believer. Let's win the world with the love of Jesus, right? Stand firm in your calling. Stand firm in your new identity in Christ. You guys remember when we were looking at that clip from Gladiator weeks and weeks ago? Together as one. That's standing firm. Standing firm. Hallelujah. One last thought. If you're here this morning and you are feeling like life has just passed you by, by like all the, the natural indicators of success by those indicators, you feel like you've fallen short, I want to offer you some hope. And it's from the book of Revelation. It's this scripture, 21, verse 5. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. God's creation, this world that has gone so hopelessly off track, is filled with pain and evil. God has promised to restore all things, all things. And we get to be a part of that right now. We get to start being a part of that now. We can believe it. Why? Because he said, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. You can believe him. You can trust him completely. That is our hope. That is why we can walk in relentless joy. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we're desperate for you, Lord. We thank you, Lord, that you see every single one of us. We thank you, Lord, that you have given us an incredible divine purpose. You've not just told us to hang in there until the day we die, but you have given us the way to overcome, to be overcomers every day, to be overcomers every day. Father, open our eyes to all the ways that you're working in us and through us and around us, all the, the opportunities you're giving us to minister your grace and love and forgiveness and mercy to other people, Father. Let it just overflow out of our lives. The love that you've shown us, help us to love others in that same way. I thank you for that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. I'm going to ask our prayer partners to come forward at this time. And um, if you have anything that you need someone to stand with you and pray about, we take this very seriously here. Then after I dismiss, everyone will be talking and visiting, but you come forward. If you need someone to pray with you, come forward and stand. Come up to one of these people up here and tell them your need. And they're going to they're gonna love you. They're going to pray with you. They have faith and they're going to stand in faith with you for that need to be met. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You guys have a great week. We'll see you Wednesday night. Bye-bye. Oh